0: Right, we are live on The Slice on a new show coming at you with uh, my good friend Sasha Osmo from Sport Club in Serbia. This is the Sasha and Steven show on The Slice. It's a tongue twister. How are you, Sasha?
1: I'm fine. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to doing this show with you. And of course, like, subscribe and follow us on every possible media channel and social networking channel.
0: Every single thing on the internet, you got to find the show. Um, but yeah, thanks Thanks for being here, guys. This is, like Sasha said, a new show on the Slice where we're going to be talking about, you know, he's from Serbia, I'm from Canada, to, I would say, developing new tennis nations. Uh, and we're going to be talking about, you know, the biggest topics, uh, a lot of Djokovic topics because Sasha's obviously got some good insights into that, into the great man, Novak Djokovic. So on this episode, the first ever show we're going to be talking about was 2021 Novak Djokovic's best year and some of you might have strong opinions on that I know Sasha might Um, but we're going to kind of take a look back at I would say the three top contenders I think everyone who follows tennis is going to know who that is or which years that were Um, but why don't you start us off with probably the first year Sasha and kind of break down maybe 2011 I hope that's what you're we didn't really think too much on this I hope that's what you're thinking
1: to make the long story short the answer to our question is no this is not his greatest year uh, in my opinion uh, in my opinion uh, the best year of Novak's career is uh, 2015 uh, to be more precise that stretch from the beginning in 2015 up to and including Paris 2016 that was uh, for me the most dominant peri- period in the history of tennis by one player but let's talk about 2011 first because i feel that some of the novak fans are uh, especially fond of this year because this was the year Novak broke through and Actually the year 2011 for Novak started in 2010 I think the there were two crucial key points for him having the year he had in 2011 that was saving two match points in the semis of the US Open against Federer wow. and even more crucial winning the Davis Cup with Serbia uh, I think that was a huge boost for him and uh, he also, he started working with uh, Dr. Igor Jokovic, uh, who now credited a lot of times for helping him uh, uh, diagnose his intolerance to gluten. And once Djokovic, uh, uh, once Djokovic changed his diet, he was able to practice differently, and uh, he became the, the beast he he is today and has been for the last uh, for the last 10 years in terms of fitness, strength, stamina, flexibility, and everything. But I think that was the starting point.
0: Yeah, that's, that's obviously, it, that is like the starting point. and That's good insight into how 2010 led into 2011. Just taking a quick look at, just I'll put the three stats here in front of everyone so that those who haven't followed it as closely as we have will know. So in 2011, the Novak went 70, 70 wins, 6 losses, 10 titles, year at number 1, and 5 Masters. 2015, uh, he went 82 and six, three grand slams, 11 titles, six masters. Year at number one, and then 2021. It's obviously COVID year. He's older now. Uh, he's only he's 44 wins, six losses, three grand slams, four titles, zero masters. He uh, really hasn't played in betting masters. So it's kind of a different year. It's hard to compare. And like Sasha said, yeah, this year is probably not his best year. But I think the main debate is is it 2015 or 2011? And for me. 2011 was almost like where he he defied the odds even more because he came from not being the best player in the world To becoming the dominant best player in the world whereas in 2015 I felt like he was the best player in the world and he just played like it for the entire year. Does that make sense?
1: Uh, I feel there were some uh, maybe some moments in 2011 that are overlooked when we when we do these types of shows I mean, uh, I remember during Indian Wells and Miami, he was so dominant. It was not a matter of if he's going to lose a match, but how many games will he lose in a set. And uh, while preparing for this show, I dig out a few stats. And actually, in Indian Wells and Miami, there were 15 sets where opponents have won uh, two or less games in a set. So that is pretty impressive for me. And uh, he started that year winning 41 matches in a row. Uh, up until that Federer loss in the semis of Paris, uh, you know the famous finger you would know as a Federer fan.
0: It is a nice famous finger. The finger shows up throughout Federer's career, and that one i probably a lot before. And then that girl at the 2019 Wimbledon, she's going one more point.
1: Yeah, but that had a, that did not go well for her.
0: That did not go well for her. Uh, I thought in 2011 it went pretty well for Federer. You know, he was the older guy there. He was the underdog in that match, and he, he had to let everyone know who's the who's the real top dog there. But
1: that was that was the only loss uh, Novak suffered that year to Nadal and Federer, and he's beaten them uh, ten times. And what I found most impressive is that he was able to beat Nadal and clay two times in eight days uh, without losing a set in Rome and in Madrid. So there. And as you said, he became number one after Wimbledon. Uh, I don't know if you know, but there was uh, a huge gathering in one of the Belgrade main squares. After that, there there was 100,000 people waiting for him and there was a huge party. So I guess that's why I said maybe for his fans, the uh, 2011 is the year they remember most. But the t- 2015 was uh, more consistent because... Uh, because Doha was the only tournament Novak did not uh, play in a final. He lost to Ivo Kailovic in the quarters and every other tournament of the, year he, of the year he played at least in the finals. So for me that's something that is going to be very, very hard to, to replicate. And he's had some really, really memorable matches, 31 top 10 wins. And uh, if you remember that US Open final against Federer, that was probably the most hostile crowd ever. Maybe we can compare it to Wimbledon 2019, but I don't think so. And he was able to, I don't know. uh, For me, the difference between uh, 2011 and 2015 is the period after the US Open. Because in 2011, Nova got himself injured and he did not have any success in that, uh, in indoor tournament or in China. Whereas in 2015 he was, he was more experienced and that kind of success he had did not feel like something unreal to him, if you know what I mean. It was just not business as usual, but he was not, he, he had that kind of experience. And I remember after winning the US Open, he went to Beijing and he's beaten Nadal in uh, finals two and two. Then won Shanghai pretty easily as well. Then won the ATP, ATP finals as well. So, as you said, 82 wins in a year. Uh, I think that was possibly the, the greatest year in the history of tennis. Not just Djokovic's year. Djokovic's best year. So, for me, it's, uh, it's clear that it's 2015.
0: Interesting, yeah. For, I think statistics-wise, yeah, it's pretty hard to argue against 2015 for being his best year. I think it's another video topic, we should compare Federer's best years, uh, you know, 2004, 2006, uh, 2007, um, with, the, with the 2015 stats-wise. Um, but yeah, I think 2015 stats-wise, probably the number one year. I don't know, what do you guys think? This is where the debate is going to live on in the comment section below. I want to see your guys' opinions, 2015 or 2011, I think that's really what it comes down to. Would you agree, Sasha, that, you know, you can't really... 2021, if Djokovic had won the US Open and won the Grand Slam, it would have been his best year? Or it just would have been a different type of thing because he just didn't play the amount of matches, maybe?
1: Yeah, I, I tend to agree with, with the second thing you just said. It would be a whole different type of uh, of success. It would be something out of this world. But if we look at the, at the season as a whole... Uh, of course, he was more consistent, and he played more matches, as you said in the beginning. He he did not play one Masters in North America this year. So, yeah. uh, if we are looking a year by year, we can't compare it. But on the other hand, if he's won a Grand Slam, I mean that's that alone gives you gives you gives you an end. But he did not do that, so we we cannot discuss that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's like he can't discuss things that uh, <laughs> did not happen. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, I think I think another thing that puts 2021 maybe on a in a bit of a different category than 2011. Ten, it's a 10 year difference, which is kind of crazy to think about. So in 2011, Djokovic was the younger guy, and you know Nadal and Federer were in their primes, really dominating. He had to like break through that barrier of the two other goats, you know, dominating. 2015, he was the best player in the world, but 20 uh, you know Federer was playing. He, Outside of losing to Djokovic, Federer was that some of his best form in 2015. now, not so much, but in 2021, Federer, or Djokovic was the only kind of player relevant outside of the French Open for, um, you know, for the big three. So it's kind of like the next era, him battling against like, the, the younger players of the next gen. So it's almost like a different, it's just a different type of uh, feat, I think. I think I give the advantage big time to Djokovic in all of the matches in the finals because he played guys who had never won... Slams. Whereas in uh, 2011, he was beating, you know, Nadal in the final, uh, who had been his arch nemesis, like you know, the super tough kind of underdog winning matches all throughout that year.
1: Uh, yes, I agree with that. But in the last 10 to 15 years, we've seen a change. Be more and more plays players uh, playing and succeeding deep into their 30s. And I think the big three has redefined that. If we, if you look at the reports, maybe from uh Seven years ago, when Federer was 34, and uh, everyone was saying how uh, how incredible it is for him to be that successful in that uh, in that age, you know. N- nowadays, it's a normal thing because we've had uh, Novak is the world number one, and he's going to be 35 next year. Be- and I feel that puts uh, a special ingredient to the successes they've all had. Uh, maybe. Maybe we should go to some of the most memorable matches in these three years we mentioned, especially in 2011. Uh, uh, I think that shot against Roger, the match point saved, that was maybe one of the points that changed uh, the history of tennis. Would you agree?
0: Yeah, that was a big one. That was, uh, you know... Covering Federer, like being a Federer fan growing up, people know this on the channel, um, that was obviously a tough one and that was such a controversial moment obviously because the crowd was against Djokovic, they were like, the match was almost like over, Federer goes to his trusty slider out wide which he didn't really hit well and then it was like, Novak, would you agree that Novak kind of slapped that ball?
1: I mean, I know what Federer said afterwards in the presser. Uh yeah, and, and the... I know
0: I know what I saw. It looked like a, it looked like a man who was almost didn't care if it landed in her. Yeah, out. it was that's it was I pretty
1: salty from Federer. I, I would like to see the reactions if if Novak said something like that. But uh, of course, I mean, but that's not the shot uh, Djokovic uh, hit that time and never again. He's been hitting it consistently throughout throughout his career. So yes, maybe there was a bit of luck involved. But you yourself mentioned that it wasn't. It was a. Uh, uh, far from perfect serve from Roger in terms of uh, both power and precision. It wasn't accurate at all. So for a returner like Djokovic, uh, uh, that was I, I, I'm not going to say an easy return, but of course a makeable return. And uh, feather feather. He had one match point after that, and he was still serving for the match. So um, that I mean that shot now looks like. Extremely important, but it could lo- it could have lost all of its relevance had Federer hit an ace on the next point. But he wasn't able to do that, and uh, 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 actually, I feel that uh, Novak's uh, most important matches in his career, he's played them against Federer. Those two matches at the U.S. Open 2010 and 11, and in my opinion, uh, Novak's most important match of Novak's career was Wimbledon 2014 against Federer. And I'll explain why. Because after that uh, tremendous 2011 that he's had, he wasn't able to break through at the major tournaments apart from Melbourne, where where he's won in 2012 and 13. And uh, he's had, um, and he started working with Boris Becker at the end of 2013. But it did not go well in the beginning because he lost in Australia and. Uh, Everyone was starting to wonder why did he hire Becker and I remember how how much Controversy was around uh, Around uh, Djokovic hiring Becker. Not many people thought that it was a great choice So if Novak had lost that match at Wimbledon in 2014 uh, having been uh, 2-1 and 5-2 up in the fourth uh, That could have been that could have been a huge blow, but the moment he's won that match uh, he was able to I think, shift to a different gear and he, he became a different player. He did lose in the US Open 2014, but I feel uh, that his preparation for that tournament uh, was not ideal because he got married and there was some other stuff as well. But uh, what I really feel is that his 2015 started in the Wimbledon Finals 2014 and shaped him into a player that uh, he was yet to become.
0: Interesting, and it's interesting to hear that perspective kind of from obviously, you know, you're in Serbia, you're like covering kind of the inside uh, following of Djokovic's career path through those times, because those, those are some details like I never would have really known watching from the outside a bit more. Um, yeah, I think t- 2011, the US Open final, or was that the semi-final, I guess, against Federer? Um, yeah, that shot, Yeah, that match... Getting over the hump there, um, sticking it to Federer, totally was like one of his uh, one of his biggest matches. And the way, super big in his in his career story, you know, when the books get made, when the videos get made with the crowd, where he's giving it to the crowd after he wins that point, goes like this. Ten years later, at this year's U.S. Open, right, he's losing, he's not winning this match, and the crowd, he's kind of has like a as a you know redemption moment with the crowd where they're actually like cheering him on. He's crying because he can feel their support. That he's actually, turns out he's wanted that support for so long. That's maybe why it bugged him so much, because he actually cared that the fans would get behind him. And then that was a really, I feel, 10 years later, it was an amazing kind of tie into the crowd support. Maybe them getting back on good terms. I'm excited for the 2022 US Open. I feel like it might be uh, more on level ground.
1: It just shows you that uh, it doesn't really matter for the outcome of the match who the crowd supports. Uh, I mean, it can be relevant maybe in some portions of the match, but maybe Novak is the best example that he was able to fight through adversity many times with uh, some of the most hostile crowds ever. And then when uh, they finally supported him, he was... But I think there was uh, a lot that went on into that US Open final. I think there was uh, the pressure that was building up practically from... uh, his first round at Wimbledon and he was able to deal with it in a way and uh, maybe he was a bit uh, physically not maybe but certainly he was not physically at his best and I think it was a combination of him physically being a bit exhausted having played a tough five setter with Zverev and losing the first sets in the previous I don't know how many rounds and of course the pressure the pressure that uh, I mean it got to him. You you could tell. I mean, especially in that third set, he was. Uh, I don't remember that I've seen Novak uh, so lost on a on a tennis court when that uh, third set began. It, you could tell that there was no more strength in him to make uh, one of those turnarounds that uh, we're used to see from him. And uh, somehow I feel I don't know if if Tsitsipas maybe watched the finals of the U.S. Open. He was like, why didn't he do that against me in Paris? You know, because I feel. I feel Medvedev himself, he was expecting that he would have to play a whole lot better to win his first Grand Slam title. But uh, this was one of the rare occasions where Novak did not make the opponent play his absolute best to win.
0: Yeah, and, and uh, I think you're right. Since the past, was probably watching it, he's like, what? Djokovic, what are you doing? You, you came back and ripped my heart out in the French Open final. And then, uh, yeah, Medvedev, I think, you know, that is... Would you consider that? Because, you know, everyone talks about choking, right? And I hate that term. I defended... They said Federer choked at the 2019 Wimbledon final. I said that's not a choke. That's called losing two points to Novak Djokovic. It's not hard to do. It's a very tight match. They're right there. So I think inexperienced tennis fans would go, he choked, he choked. They'd also say maybe Djokovic choked because he was playing Medvedev. He never won a a slam final before. He he was the obvious favorite. Um, But... With all the pressure that you talked about mounting on him, you know, and he's still, he's 34 and a half. Like we said, it's normal for them to be good now, but it's, it's not an advantage anymore. He's 34, Medvedev's like 25. Medvedev has the advantage physically. So I feel like there were a lot of things working against Djokovic there, but we're just so used to seeing him figure it out and win that it's, it was mind blowing to see him get pretty, you know, handily beat in the, uh, in the biggest final of his career, probably.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, for me, before the match, it was 50-50. Uh, I did not think that Novak was uh, such a huge favorite uh, with all you've just said. And Medvedev was way fresher and his road to the finals was uh, was way easier. I mean, he dealt with his draw uh, with his draw pretty well. And uh, I think uh, John McEnroe once said it's not uh, whether you're going to choke or not, it's how you react to that choke. And I think over the course of uh, over the course of matches, there are some points when all of the players are tight. I remember, I remember, for example, Novak uh, uh, when he talked about 2014 final uh, uh, against Federer at Wimbledon. He was describing how his his arm was so tight on the return he could not let go. But uh, that was only at some point in the match. We all know how he played that final. So I would not say that Federer choked against. Uh, Novak in Wimbledon 2019, I don't know what constitutes a choke, but I I think, um, I do think that the the pressure was a part of the reason, that the pressure was part of the reason why Novak lost uh, the US Open final in a way he did. Uh, Maybe if he played it better, maybe Medvedev would have raised his level as well, and I feel... uh, and I felt before the match as well, with Medvedev being the type of opponent that he is, you know, it's all, it was always going to be uncomfortable for Novak playing him with that kind of pressure, you know, specific pressure. Because uh, there are not, I think there are different kinds of pressures. And uh, Novak and Federer and Nadal, they've experienced most of them. But neither of them was uh, felt what Novak probably felt before that US Open final. Because that was... Like the holy grail of tennis. I mean, and uh, I must emphasize this, that uh, even though Novak did not win a calendar Grand Slam this year, he did hold uh, all four Slam trophies at once. And I I think that's something that does not get mentioned enough. Because in 2015 and 2016, he, he uh, he simultaneously held all four trophies and uh, on three different surfaces, which is something no one has ever done in history. And uh, as I said, I think that should be uh, mentioned more frequently.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. That is a good point. Um, that, is a, that was a crazy time of, of the tennis. And that was the 2014-2015 year, ta- year that we're talking about. Um, yeah, and I, yeah, I think it's totally disrespectful to say that Djokovic choked. He didn't choke, obviously. There's a there's always gonna be a time when when uh, when you know the younger players got confident enough, got strong enough, whatever to to finally match Djokovic or Federer, Nadal in a final. Um, and this was this is when it happened. And now Medvedev's obviously like he's just a totally bad man on hard courts. Now going forward for the rest of the year for Djokovic, how how important do you think the year-end number one title is to Djokovic this year in 2021? Because he's he's basi- I think he's basically got it locked down. He's obviously the year nine, number one, he's won three slams. But I think there is a chance that if Medvedev won Paris and the World Tour Finals, he could pass him.
1: I think it matters a lot more to his fans than it does to him. I, I, I think that uh, after his loss to Medvedev in the press conference, he wasn't even sure if if he was uh, number one at that point as well. And you can see by, the, by his scheduling and by the way he's preparing uh, for these tournaments that... Uh, uh, Djokovic uh, was always very transparent and clear about his goals, and uh, but and that is something that uh, people tend to notice. But uh, he is always open, not only about goals, but uh, about the things he that are not his priorities anymore. And after he's won the, after he was able to secure the historic number ones with most weeks and number one, he said. Plainly, I'm now switching my priorities, and you could hear him say about uh, after he lost uh, in the Olympics bronze medal match that from this point on in my career the only thing I'm focusing on are slams and uh, performing for my country. And uh, by the choice of tournaments he made up until the, the end of the year, you can you can see that that's true because he's playing Paris, he's playing Turin, and then he's playing uh, uh, he's playing Davis Cup. Well, which I don't think, uh, which I don't think many expected him to do. And considering that uh, he was, uh, that he's still in Belgrade, that he's not in Paris, I don't expect to see the best of Novak in Paris. And uh, I think he, uh, I read something. Uh, I, I think that was uh, one of our colleagues. I, I can't remember who, but uh, I think it would be wise for Novak maybe to have played. Uh, maybe Vienna, to go to Vienna and just, you know, play for the sake of it. Because since his uh, first round at Roland Garros, every match for him was a do-or-die, you know. Roland Garros, Wimbledon, Olympics, US Open. He did not have a chance to, you know, loosen up and play freely and just, as I said, play play for the sake of it. And I think maybe he will use Paris Masters as that kind of tournament to be able to maybe... Get a couple, a couple of matches in, and to be, to be in a good shape for Turin for the, for the ATP finals.
0: Yeah, I hope he can get back to his kind of just playing in his free way and and without as much. My-